Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's open up to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, as we hear from Claude this morning, as he continues in our Advent series titled, Fix Our Eyes on Jesus' Identity. publicly at times that we take great joy in receiving, like perhaps an announcement of the possibility of snow on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, that kind of brings delight, or perhaps the announcement at your workplace that everyone's getting a raise or at least a cost of living increase, or we're more used to announcements like everyone's getting a stimulus check in the mail, or there's a vaccine that might help take care of a virus. We even get excited if a groundhog in Pennsylvania tells us that spring's going to come early. That's a great announcement. But you know, there's hardly a better announcement than a birth announcement. The announcement that a new life is to be born. That's a great thing. You know, they usually come, that birth announcement, in the mail or maybe an email and often after the birth. But there's also a more subtle announcement before the birth when someone, a couple or a woman says to her family and her friends that she's expecting a child. And then, because of the wonders of modern medical technology, sometimes there is another thing that brings us great joy, and that's a party, and it's called a gender reveal party, where because of ultrasound and other tests, you can know what your child will be, boy or girl, and some couples decide to have a a party to announce that in some very, very creative ways. But nothing tops the announcement of this birth that we see in Luke chapter 1 or the gender reveal that's revealed here. It's it's an amazing thing. And as we look at this passage from Luke chapter 1, I want us to see three things that it tells us about Jesus. It tells us that his birth is unprecedented. It tells us that his greatness is unsurpassed. And then it tells us that he will be called holy. So let's dig into this unprecedented birth. You know, there's a reason why... The arrival of new life through the normal biological process is sometimes called the miracle of birth because it is an amazing thing that birth happens. Some births seem more miraculous than others because they come through very difficult circumstances. There were miraculous births in the Old Testament. Older women who should not expect to bear child, like Sarah, at nearly 100 years old, gets the announcement that she will bear a child. Or a barren woman like Hannah gets the announcement that she will bear a child. But there's never been a birth like this one described in Luke chapter 1. This is the only one like it. It's unprecedented. A birth from the womb of a virgin. Conception in the womb of a virgin. It's a once never repeated event that Luke describes in chapter 1 of his gospel. The angel Gabriel shows up at an out-of-the-way place, the town of Nazareth. It's called a city, but it's really more of a town in first-century days. He comes to the somebody who's really a nobody named Mary. And Gabriel describes what will happen to this young woman, Mary. Well, we would call her a girl. She's probably, scholars suggest, no more than 14 years old. And Gabriel describes what will happen. Verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son... And you shall call his name Jesus. And then in verse 35, a little bit more explanation. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The 
power of the Most High, the Holy Spirit, overshadowing a 14-year-old girl named Mary. And Luke's using words here, reporting what Gabriel says. He uses words as Rich reminded us in an earlier sermon right out of Genesis chapter 1 where the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters of the uncreated, unformed earth. And so the Holy Spirit will hover over this young woman, this child named Mary, and she will become pregnant with the child. It's an amazing thought. Gabriel explains to Mary this unprecedented, unscientific, irrational way of having a child. And Mary's only 14, perhaps, but... She lives in a culture where the women of the village and her own community, her own family, are tight. They talk. She knows the facts of life by now. She knows that babies aren't delivered by storks. She gets that this is unprecedented, and she doesn't quite understand, so there's no reason why she shouldn't respond the way she does. She's stumped. How will this be, since I am a virgin? We think that Mary lived with her parents in Nazareth at the time. We know that she was betrothed to wed Joseph. Again, as Rich explained in his earlier sermon, that that betrothal was a little bit further along than engagement as we think about it, but not quite to being married. The marriage had not been consummated yet. And so she knew that she had not been with a man, did Mary. So she doesn't really understand how it could possibly be true that she is going to have a child now not after the marriage is consummated. We can assume she knew that much. We can assume that her question isn't one of unbelief. It's just one of trying to figure out how could this possibly be. And so the the angel Gabriel tells her, and he does it in a calm way. He doesn't rebuke her at all for her question of wondering how. doesn't say don't doubt. just says this is how it is. And you know, the amazing thing about this young woman, this girl named Mary, is that she believed what Gabriel told her. She believed that the Lord is able to do what is humanly impossible, even inside of her. That God could take her 23 or so chromosomes and combine them with 23 or so chromosomes that come from where? (laughs) And create a human life. It will be a boy. You will call him Jesus. That wonderful name from Old Testament days of Joshua. One who saves or one who delivers. But Mary's response is is both an example and a challenge to us. Mary had not known a man. She had not been intimate with a man the way we think of that. But it's evident that Mary knew God. That somehow she had a spiritual intimacy with her heavenly father that allowed her to receive news from an angel, a wonderful message, an amazing birth announcement, an amazing party, if you will, of a gender identity reveal. But she believed it. Not only did she believe it, her response is this. Let it be to me according to your word. She submits to God's direction to the transformational word that the angel Gabriel brings into her life. I think it's a wonderful example, but it's a challenge. The challenge for me is, will I submit to God's word the same way that Mary does? Am I willing to receive announcements from my heavenly father and receive them with faith the way that she did? 
and say the way that she did, let it be to me according to your word. Now, I can do that easily enough if it's good news. If, if it's a promise that says something that I'm, that I'm down about and gives me a promise to have hope, I, I embrace that. If it's a promise of, of success in some area of my life that I struggle with, I claim that promise. I want to believe that promise. But you know, sometimes when God's word comes to us, it's a harder thing than that. It's a, it's a difficult exhortation or command that I'm to obey. Sometimes I receive God's word when I read that and say, well, I don't know about that. That's going to take a lot from me, or I'm not sure I can do that, which is really my way of saying, I'm not sure I want to do that. Well, Mary receives God's word. And what an, an amazing word that was. What a difficult word that was, that you will bear a child out of wedlock. Imagine what her parents must have thought. And yet she receives it with, with humble faith. Let it be to me according to your word. She's really saying, I take this word from God, and I believe it's for me. And I'll live it out as if it is indeed meant for me by faith. Mary received the angel's news as words from God. Can we do the same? Shouldn't we do the same as we receive God's word, whether we read it or hear it taught or preached to us? Because Mary's belief was that this unprecedented birth was God's word for her. But more than that, we see that this unprecedented birth that describes Jesus as coming into the world there's also word here about Jesus and his unsurpassed greatness. Verse 32, the angel says to Mary, he will be great and he will be called son, the son of the most high. Now, Gabriel had already visited Zechariah, the husband of Elizabeth, the cousin of Mary, and had already told him and thus Elizabeth that they would also bear a child and that that child in chapter 1 of Luke and earlier verses would also be great. Gabriel has said John, that child's name, would be great. So we might read this and say, well, he's not the only great one. Is this Jesus? John's going to be great. And John was great. John the Baptist was great. Jesus himself said of John, that he would be great. He said, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, Matthew eleven eleven. It's pretty amazing words. Imagine all the great people who had been born and lived before the day that John the Baptist was born. There had been some great philosophers in the world, men like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. There had been some great leaders, the pharaohs of Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great. There have been great men in the Bible. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Elijah, David, Solomon, Daniel, the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Great men. And yet Jesus says of John, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He was great. His greatness was seen in what he would say. But what John would say is that there's one coming after me greater, greater than I am. And that's the baby that will be born to Mary. And Jesus' greatness, unsurpassed in, in its greatness, is seen in, in both what he is, 
who he is and what he does and how he does it. Because Gabriel says to Mary, he will be great, verse 31 again, 32 again, the son of the Most High. John was not described that way. The son of the Most High, the Most High being God himself. And you know, even though Jesus later in in Luke chapter 6 will say to his disciples that they could become sons of the Most High if they would embrace the kingdom of God in their midst. Two chapters later in Luke chapter 8, it's another voice that speaks of the greatness of Jesus. And this time it's not a disciple, it's not an angel, it's not his mother Mary, it's a demon who recognizes Jesus for who he is and says that this is the Son of the Most High. There's no one greater than Jesus. He was great because of who he is, but he's also great because of what he'll do. The angel put it this way to Mary, that he would assume the throne of his father David. And in those words, assuming the throne of his father David, Gabriel is saying to Mary that Jesus will take the throne of David will extend the kingdom that was promised to David. And there had been a long gap. There had been no king like that for many, many years. And the thought would be clear that the one who is coming named Jesus will be king like David, which means he will really be Messiah. It's a code word for that. And the way he does that shows his unsurpassed greatness Because Gabriel says, he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. But Jesus didn't arrive like a king. He was born among the lowest of the low, among the poorest of the poor. But he would be the greatest of the great. There will be no one greater, Gabriel says. Because his kingdom and his reign will never end. And he will be unlike any other king in the line of David's kingdom. They all serve for a period and live for a time. And the books of Chronicles give us the list of how long they lived and how long they served as king. And then the fact that they died and someone came after them. But Jesus would not be that way. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. He will reign forever. And he will be greater than even Mary as great as she appears and is in this chapter, because Mary herself will say simply these words of self-disclosure. I am a servant of the Lord. But when Jesus is born, true greatness arrives on earth. And while his birth was unexpected and no doubt unprecedented, and his greatness unsurpassed, what I want us to see before I close this morning is the title of this sermon called Holy. He will be called holy, verse 35. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Six different writers in the scripture reveal the fact that Jesus was holy. He was without sin. Imagine it's this, put it this way. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 says that Jesus is without sin. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 says Jesus is the one who committed no sin. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 describes Jesus as him who had no sin. The Apostle John states in his letter, first letter, chapter 3, in him is no sin. In the Old Testament, Isaiah described him prophetically as saying that he would be the righteous one, holy. 
The Psalms describe him as one who loved righteousness and hated wickedness, Psalm 45. Six different writers of scripture all saying the same thing about Jesus. He will be holy. But even more compelling, perhaps, is Jesus' own testimony about himself. In John chapter 8, there's an interesting recording of an encounter Jesus had with Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, thought of as the real spiritual people who were walking the earth. But they didn't receive Jesus, accept Jesus, believe in Jesus. They debated Jesus and in the end had to get rid of Jesus. But in an encounter that John describes in chapter 8 of his gospel, Jesus at one point turns to them and say, which, says, which one of you convicts me of sin? Now, what a question. Now, obviously, nobody answered him. No Pharisee said, uh, I will. Nobody could. But someone's pointed out that it's not just that nobody could answer that question with an affirmative yes, I can. It's really the whole point that Jesus would ask that question. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Nobody could. Even his disciples who were with him when he was having that debate with the Pharisees and had lived with him in life, had seen him day to day in every aspect of life, if anybody would have seen Jesus slip up in something, one of them could have said, well, well, Jesus, well, Master, remember that time when you hit your, hand, your thumb with a hammer and you said something that wasn't very nice? <laughs> or do you remember that time you weren't very nice to that woman who stepped in front of you in line? Or Jesus, sometimes, even the way you talk to the Pharisees, that, that doesn't seem like. But no one said that. Nobody could say that. Jesus was without sin. He was holy. But Jesus' holiness was not just a matter of being without sin. It wasn't just a matter that he got all the right things right and didn't do the wrong things. That he could, he could balance the list. That's not all that this is saying, that he is holy. That he'll be called holy. It's saying more. It's really saying that Jesus would occupy a moral space that no one else had ever occupied on, on earth. He would be completely unique. And that's because his every attribute and action would be holy. Not just getting things right and wrong, the right way and the wrong way. It was that everything about him reflected God. He was holy in his justice when he would enact it among people like the Pharisees. He was holy in his mercy as he showed mercy to those who needed it most. He was holy in power when he exercised demons out of people. Or when he healed people from their diseases. He was holy in love when he embraced those who needed embracing. Like a woman caught in adultery. He was holy in wisdom as he debated Pharisees and others who were against him. He was holy in anger even when he would upset the tables of the money changers in the temple. He was holy in grace as he provided that kind of unmerited favor to all those around him. He was holy in compassion as he showed compassion to every single person that he healed. Gabriel says, he will be called holy, the son of God. And what he's saying there is that Jesus is God. Because his holiness is the perfect conformity to his father's will. There is no difference when you see Jesus and you see the father. If you want to know the father, look at Jesus, they say. If you want to know Jesus, look at the Father. They're the same. They're holy. Jesus 
stated that when he came down from heaven, he came not to do his own will, but to do the will of him who sent me, John chapter 6. He perfectly represented the Father who is God. On another occasion, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus didn't come with his own agenda to prove himself, to make a statement for how great he was. He came to do the will of him who sent him, God himself. But maybe his highest testimony to his positive holiness was simply his statement, I always do what pleases him. Well, I can't say that. And by the way, I know you can't say it either. But Jesus could. He is holy. He is perfect. Not only morally perfect, he is exactly like the Father. He will be called holy, the Son of God. And yet he came born to be a man. He came to disclose who God is, but he took on our flesh. But because he's the holy God, he came with the same hatred of sin that the Father had. Hatred that sin inevitably excludes men and women from fellowship with God. And so Gabriel says that God will become a man and he will embrace what it means to be human and he will share man's life and pain and sorrow and identify with man's sin so clearly that in actuality he will go to the cross bearing the sin of man, all the consequences and the penalty, dying in our place. It's no wonder that C.S. Lewis would write in his book, The Last Battle, this wonderful little line, quote, Once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. That was Jesus. Unprecedented birth. Unsurpassed greatness. Called holy, the Son of God. And then as I close, let me remind you that the reason he came is that we need a savior and we can't make a savior for ourselves. We couldn't create the perfect man to be a savior for mankind. We needed God's intervention. We needed someone who would come and take on our flesh, take on our humanity, be just like us, tempted in every way that we are tempted and yet without sin. He would be called holy. And he will be called Jesus, again Joshua, the one who saves, the one who delivers. Uniquely God's son, the divine word, the image bearer, the only begotten son of God. And of course, Gabriel makes it clear to Mary and thus to us that he will be also king. King not just of Israel, but of the whole world. Mary's son would rule the world. And so he does. The child that we celebrate his birth at Christmas rules our world. He's alive today, ruling and reigning now and forever. We await the day when he returns and the kingdom that he reigns in will consummate and all will bow knee and confess with tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. So as we prepare to receive him again this Christmas, Let's remember that we receive one whose birth was unprecedented, whose greatness is unsurpassed, and is who is called holy, which leaves us with one last question. Will we this Christmas, once again, bow before the lordship, the kingship of Jesus, and embrace 
his kingdom, which will last forever. May we do so. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus by meeting people wherever they are spiritually and physically. If you'd like to learn more or connect with us, follow us on social media at WCChapel757 or visit our website, wcchapel.org. Have a blessed day.